0: do you want to see? Do you want clarity? Do you want your eyes wide open? You're sure. These were the implied questions asked of the blind Bartimaeus last week. Yes, I want to see, he said. If you were here, you heard Pastor Dan walk us through that story. And at the end of Mark chapter 10, Bartimaeus receives his sight and he joins the disciples along the way, along the path to Jerusalem. We must assume there are many pilgrims and disciples together because it's time for Passover. And by association, by insinuation, the rest of the disciples can now see They enter Jerusalem with their eyes open. It is a good part of the story. This is the part where you don't want to leave now. We're getting to the good stuff. If you haven't joined along, it's a good time to open your Bible for the next two weeks and finish the Gospel of Mark with this. You know how it is when you have a book and you know you're at the good part. You just don't want to close it and put it down. You know perhaps how it is in a meal when you've been waiting for the good part. Or an evening with friends. The good part, you can't leave now, it's just getting good. That's where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're at the good part. You have scenes like that in movies that you remember? For me, The Sound of Music, when the Von Trapp family children gather along the staircase to sing farewell to the captain's guests at the dinner party. And the little tiny one sits at the base of the stairs and says, The sun has gone to bed and so must die. And she does this in her eye. I, I love that part. <laughs> Can't miss that part. Or my first favorite movie, Amadeus, Wolfgang Mozart, Amadeus, the part where he lays backwards on the piano bench and raises his arms over the back of his head to the keyboard and plays the harpsichord upside down with both hands. I love that scene. Or J.R. Tolkien, movie number three, I don't do violence very well, but I fast forward to get to this scene. On the battlefield of Pelennor Fields where Eowyn is not supposed to be because women are not allowed in battle, and she has snuck out, and she's fighting this creature three times her size, a ringwraith, and the ringwraith breathes on her and says, you fool, no mortal man can kill me. I love this part. She takes her hand with one confident swoop, She takes off her helmet, stands up, and says, I am no mortal man. (laughs) I love that part. (laughs) Rewind again, again. (laughs) I am no mortal man. Yes, Eowyn. We're at the good part of the Gospel of John. You don't want to stop now. Where we're headed there are no Easter lilies on the cross. You can be sure of that. Jesus and the disciples, you remember where they started? In the wilderness. Nowhere, socially, politically, religiously, the wilderness is nowhere. And they've come from the wilderness all the way now into the center of the, of the universe, Jerusalem. For the ancient Sumerians, the center of the universe, they had their own city, Kippur, the center of the Sumerian universe. For the Babylonians, it was Babylon, the city of Babylon. Everything revolves around Babylon. For the Greeks, it's Delphi, one of the few places I've been in the world. Delphi, where you can see the oracle of Delphi and the temple, the shrine to the goddess there, all wisdom comes out of the ground of this center of the universe in Delphi. For Hebrews, for the Hebrew children, and later for Christians, Jerusalem is the center of the universe. Jesus is now marching right into the center. Yes, politically. Yes, religiously for sure. Spiritually, this is where it's all happening. Not bad. He's come from nowhere to the middle of the universe with these disciples. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him. The Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. The Lord needs it. Everyone would recognize that's a request from a king or a ruler. Find a colt that's not been ridden because that one's dedicated for sacred service. Verse 4 now. They went. They found a colt outside the street, tied in the doorway, perhaps best understood, tied at the crossroads of two streets there. They untied it, and some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed all shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David! Hosanna in the highest! It's a Messiah parade, and it looks familiar to the people in Jerusalem. They can recognize a parade like this. They've seen dozens of them before. They've seen one fairly contemporary to the time of Mark during the years 66 to 70. There was a Messiah parade He wasn't too successful, a little revolt leader who attempted to march into the city of Jerusalem and take over the region, and it only lasted for a few days. There was one much more successful 200 years before that, Simon Maccabeus, definitely a very powerful revolt leader, And, and in fact, the area of Palestine was ruled by this gentleman, his army, he came with palm branches, with songs and hymns, and posted a guard And they ruled the city for a long time under that Messiah. So the people standing around, they know what a Messiah parade looks like. And Mark takes these components, and they all become now part of this story. Someone has called this wonderful street theater. There is a script to be followed here. What is interesting about this script, however, is Jesus alters things a little bit. He comes riding in on a donkey, you can be sure that none of the messiahs who came before were on a donkey. And if you read those verses 1 through 10, half of them talk about the donkey. The donkey has a a big role in this parade. What is the big deal about the donkey? Max Locato said years ago in one of his books, when I get to heaven, I don't know who you want to see, but I know who I want to see. I want to find the guy who owned the donkey. What were you thinking when you gave your donkey? Did you know where your donkey would end up? What is the donkey all about? We read together Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Here's what it's all about Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king. He comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when you read in Matthew, if you ever wonder why Matthew has to say a donkey and a foal or and a colt, it's because Zechariah uses two words for the same animal. Mark doesn't do that. Mark just says, there's a donkey. If we were to continue on in Zechariah, we see this leader will not only ride a donkey and he'll come humbly, but he will kick out the war horses from Jerusalem and he'll, he'll break the bows for battle in two Then what is he armed with? What's left? Because you're supposed to have a battle next. When you come in a Messiah parade, there's supposed to be a battle. Everybody knows this, and the Roman guards must be prepared for this. So what are the weapons? Just shouts of, Hosanna, save us. And who are the warriors? A group of peasants that are following Jesus. What is this script, this Messiah script that Jesus is following? It doesn't make sense. And the story ends in this very kind of anticlimactic way in verse 11. Jesus enters Jerusalem and he went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's a mile and a half away. He goes to bed. That's it. Is he going to leave any guards around the temple? Is he going to put, put people outside the city gates? Is he going to mark off his territory in some way? Will they recognize him if he comes back in the morning? Will they say, oh, oh, yeah, that's the Messiah who rode the donkey last night. Why would he enter Jerusalem just to turn around and leave it and go a mile half away and sleep for the night? That's the next ruler. If you remember the way Jesus' story starts not that long ago at Christmas time, you'll remember that that script was altered a little bit too. When the king comes as a baby, when the king comes out of Nazareth, what good thing comes out of Nazareth? When the king can't find a place to sleep at night so he can be born, when he comes as a prince of peace during a time when there's quite a lot of peace already in the kingdom. We call this subverted, a subverted script. And it's consistent for Jesus. His life began that way, and here we go towards the end. It seems to be ending that way in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus isn't following the script. You know what a script is. It tells me the part I play, and it tells you the part you play. It tells us sort of how we're supposed to do this dance together. We, we have them for all sorts of things in life. I was pulled over by an officer of the law this week. There's a script when that happens, isn't there? You know that there's a script. There is a dance we do. I get my driver's license, and I hand it out the window with a smile. And he says, good evening, ma'am. Always so pleasant. (laughs) And the very next line, they know this line. I think they teach it in the academy. Do you know why I've pulled you over? It's a ridiculous line, but I know they're going to ask it. And I know I'm supposed to say, yes, I was driving too fast. Yes, you were. Do you know how fast you were driving? There's a script. I say no because I know he knows how fast I've been driving. (laughs) Right? No, I do not know how fast I was driving. And in the back seat, I hear a voice who says, the fines are doubled in construction zones, mama. Way to go. Not on the script. He continues. He tells me how fast he's clocked me, and he says, Did you know the fines are doubled in a construction zone? This is an $800 ticket, which is what I did. Still following the script. I'm quiet. He says, are you on business or vacation tonight? It's 1 a.m. outside of the city of Portland. The whole family is in the car last weekend. No, we're not on vacation. My in-laws are getting a little older and we need to move them into a retirement home and we're on our way there, which was partial truth. (laughs) They are getting older, we are on our way there. They need to talk about moving. He says, oh. On the script, he taps the top of the car. If you'll slow it down for me, I won't write you a ticket. I'll slow it down. <laughs> he hands me my driver's license. You're from California, he says. We, we don't drive this fast in Oregon. <laughs> You can predict that script, can't you? There is a dance we do. Jesus is not doing it in his Messiah parade here. He's off script. So if he didn't come to seize the temple, if he didn't come to set up a new kingdom, if he isn't going to take control, what in the world is he doing? Listen to the very next story of the fig tree because it gives us a clue and you need to know that Mark is the only gospel writer who does this with the fig tree. A fig tree which is a sign for peace in the Hebrew Bible. A fig tree, when it's prosperous, that's an indication, a metaphor for God's blessing. When the fig tree is prosperous, that means there's peace and security. When the fig tree is not, when it's withered, that's a metaphor, an indication of God's judgment. It's a cursing. There's a problem. And the Old Testament is full of so many examples of this. Isaiah 28, Joel 1, Hosea 9, the root is withered, there will yield no fruit. Jeremiah 8, there will be no figs on the tree and the leaves will wither. The fig tree is a metaphor. Watch what Mark does with it. Chapter 11, verse 12. The next day as they left Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find and see if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing. But leaves, because it was not the season for figs, which is odd. Why does it have leaves? Why is he looking for fruit if it's not the season for figs? Maybe this isn't a story about hunger and fruit after all. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. No, it's not a story about hunger. It's not a story about how to care for God's good creation, plant the plant life. No, it's a judgment, and every Jew in Jerusalem would know this is a judgment coming from God. Jesus is about to deliver a judgment. There's evil somewhere. Keep reading. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He turned the tables of the money changers over and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Another Old Testament metaphor, a harsh one. We know there's evil in the empire. If you remember two or three weeks ago, Pastor Ken told us on the regions of Galilee, everywhere Jesus went, he confronted evil in whatever Form. It manifested itself. We know there's evil in the empire, but did we expect that Jesus would walk into the core of the universe, into the center of spiritual life, into the very place where the presence of God dwells, and find evil there? Did we expect to read that in the Gospel of Mark? There is an authoritative Adventist interpretation of this story of the cleansing of the temple, which I believe goes like this. Jesus overturned the temples and the money changers. That means we're not to get careless in the sanctuary. It's a holy place. We don't run around and shout and get loud, and we don't buy and sell things in here. You don't buy a concert ticket in here. You buy it in the office, and when the concert is over, you don't buy the CD right here. We sell it out there on the sidewalk because we don't change money inside the holy, sacred walls of the temple because Jesus didn't like that. We don't do money here except for offering. I'd like to suggest to you that there might be another interpretation of this story, an additional one. Could it be that there's something more offensive to Jesus and therefore more offensive to God than buying a Heritage Singer's CD after a concert in the sanctuary? Could there be something more offensive? yes, look who Jesus picks out. Two of his own tribe, his own clan. He's in the house of Israel. This is Jerusalem. These are his people. And he goes and picks out two of the authorities who represent his system. One is a money changer. He has a table set up there. When you travel into Jerusalem for pilgrimage, you need temple currency. You can't use your own money. Someone has to change the money for you. It would be like if we had Marva, our treasurer, or Rod Neal, the chair of the finance committee, sit outside the doors and take your U.S. dollars and somehow give you Adventist dollars for a fee, then you could take your Adventist dollars and put them in the tithe envelope and pay your tribute to God. That's the money changer. And then he singles out the animal sellers. They sell, you know, doves and animals and oils and spices and wine and salt because when people come to the temple, they need to pay a sacrifice because they're impure They're unholy. The priests and perhaps the scribes have told them how much they owe. And so people are set up outside to sell goods so that those who are sinful can come into the sanctuary and stand upright before God. The more sinful, the more impure, the more sacrifices you will need to buy. So if you are a leper... Or ladies, if you are ritually impure, if you are lame, if you are a widow, you will need to spend more money at the table to buy more sacrifice so you can come inside and stand upright just like all the good folk. Could it be that that is more offensive to God to see the temple benefit off oppressed people? To see the temple get wealthy off of people who are already oppressed, and the temple be certain that they stay in their oppressed category. Because the more of you who come who are oppressed, the wealthier we get. Could it be that's why Jesus overturns the tables? When he walks out, look what happens to the fig tree. Verse 18 the chief priests and the teachers of the law they heard what jesus was doing overturning the table they began to they looked for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching and now jesus is marked for death remember way back in chapter 3 the herodians wanted to kill him but now his own kin his own people his own tribe the house of israel wants to also kill him verse 20 in the morning they went along and they saw the fig tree Withered from its roots. A judgment. That is a judgment from God. Peter remembered and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed, it has withered. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And the fig tree metaphor underscores the reality of the temple abuse. God is making a judgment. You better have faith in God because evil can even creep inside of the temple. You better put your faith in God, not the temple rituals, not the temple sacrifices, not the priests and the officiants at the temple. You better have faith in God, because if it's not God, there's a chance evil can creep in. That's the teaching from the fig tree in the Gospel of Mark, unique from any other gospel. If you kept reading today on on through the rest of 12 and 13, you'll see just a few more conversations unfold. Jesus is asked, uh, where do you get this authority? And then a little conversation about marriage in the afterlife from a group of men, the Sanhedrin, who don't even believe in an afterlife. Well, that's a ridiculous conversation. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the first teaching of all? That's a dangerous question for a rabbi. They try not to, to make one thing above all. But Jesus answers with the traditional, love God. And then he adds, and love your neighbor. Those are the first, the first and second commandments. And then Jesus distances himself from David's kingship, saying, no, my kingship is not going to be about recovering the temple. And a little story about a widow who has already been marginalized because her husband died, but now she's so poor because the temple has taken her estate to pay temple tax. And then we get to chapter 13, conversation about the end, last things. In the Gospel of Matthew, it takes two chapters to get through all of what Mark does in one chapter. It's called the little apocalypse. And the disciples are worried because now they know Jesus has walked right into his own temple and he's crossed a new boundary. And in chapter 13, they say, Jesus, uh uh-oh, Tell us what's going to happen. What are the signs? What should we look for? What will we see? And when will it happen? Are those not relevant questions for today? And do you hear your friends talking about them? When will it happen? How will we know? What signs should we look for? When will God come? How will we be ready? These are the same questions on the lips of the disciple, disciples. But I'd like for you to look just at these quick verbs. Verse five, Jesus says, Chapter thirteen, verse five: Watch out! No one deceives you. Verse nine: Be on guard. Verse eleven: Don't worry. Would someone like to say, Amen? Don't worry. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. Verse 37, watch, stay awake. Remember, your eyes are open, but I don't want you to be sucked in with wars and rumors of wars because you are disciples. You see clearly you have what what Jesus would call bifocal vision. You see wars and rumors of wars, and you see death, and you see sadness, but you also see something else long-term. Nobody else can see in this kingdom. You have bifocal vision. So don't be worried about signs and wonders and looking for things to happen. And if it would make a difference, by the way, would would it make a difference if you knew when the end was going to come? Would it change how you were going to live today? Well, then live that way today. Would it change how you'll treat someone, someone else? Well, then treat them that way today. Would it alter your priorities in life? Well, then just go ahead and alter those priorities right now. Because the first thing is the first thing. Love God and love your neighbor. Today is the day to love God. Today is the day to love your neighbor. Someone has rightly asked, what would it be like if we would take all the energy we expend on worrying about last things and apply that energy to first things? Love God. Love one another. You have bifocal vision. Two things I cannot miss when I study Mark 11, 12, and 13 together. The first one is Jesus walking squarely into the middle of the power structures of his day and calling evil by its right name. My friends, this is for you and I in the inside circle. This is for you and I, an invitation to walk right into the middle of where the presence of God is, the sacred and the holy places. This church, that office where the pastoral staff meets, Mesa Grande Academy, Loma Linda University, our conference office, our general conference, where our our general conference president is preaching at Loma Linda University Church today, I feel confident he would agree. We have a responsibility to walk squarely into the middle of our power structures And ask, is there any evil here? You are not welcome. That's what a disciple of Jesus does. And it will be risky if you walk into your own territory and challenge it. Your own territory may challenge you. And some of you have tasted that. Walking into your own territory and challenging it. It could be in your church. I will never forget the day and that I met Pastor Frank Williams and I did not know what was about to unfold and how he was using me to walk into the middle of his power structure. He met me in a parking lot about nine years ago and said, you will come and preach in my church. We lived in Houston, Texas. I wasn't a pastor yet. And I said, uh, how do you know if that will even be a good choice? He said, no, I know, you're coming. He was the pastor of one of the black churches in the city of Houston. I said to him, has this ever happened before? All implications. He said, no. I remember pulling my sleeve up in the middle of the parking lot at the elementary school, my translucent white skin, and laying it next to his very, very dark brown skin and saying, are you sure? He said, I am sure. You are coming to my church. And the day I got to his church, he stood up at his pulpit and he said, Church, Sister Oberg's here to preach the word of God. Amen, church? The church says, Amen. You know what it means to preach, church? It means to speak for God. Amen? The church says, Amen. So the Spirit's on her church. Amen? Amen. And I'm looking around like, what in the world? This is the first sermon ever came out of my mouth from a pulpit. He sat down, I stood up, I sat down, he stood up. He said all over again for 10 minutes, Church, Sister Oberg, just preach the word of God. Amen? Amen. The spirit is on her. Amen? Amen. Sister Oberg, I don't know where you're going to go to school, but you do that because the spirit's on you and you preach. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. It was a horrible sermon. I know it was a horrible sermon. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Because I stood at the back door when it was over. And woman after woman cried on my shoulder and said, Wow, thank you for being here today. Do you know how many years we have waited for this? Because one pastor walked into the middle of the power structure that existed in the house of God and said, Evil, you get out of here. It's risky. You may do it in your church. You may do it in your home. You may do it with your family, your own clan. I also will never forget the first time I had to tell a family member, an elder, who I respect, you will not talk that way in our home. Our children will never hear language like that. We will never hear other human beings referred to by those ugly, ugly taglines. It's not okay here. If you call people out in your own territory, your own territory may call you out. You may walk into the community and do it. You, you, you may remember the first time you ever marched or protested something or you sent a contribution somewhere because you believed in a cause that the agenda of God needed to take care of some people in the world somewhere who don't have all the life God intended them to have. That's what Jesus teaches me when he walks into the middle of Jerusalem and begins to attack the power structures that exist, whether they're there legitimately or not. And he also reminds us, he reminds me as a disciple, you have bifocal vision. It is clear now. Yes, the cross is very close. It's just steps away from where we are in the gospel of Mark. It's just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. But do not be afraid. Have faith in God. Do not worry. Everything has changed.
1: My wounded King, this changes everything. Let sing with us. Amazing grace. So here I am. I-
0: changes everything. I can hear that line coming out of God's mouth so long ago when he put Eden together and, and that terrible first sin took place. This changes everything. I can hear the line coming out of Jesus' mouth as he comes to earth because he and God have hearts wed together. They are after us. Whatever they have to do changes things. Walking into Jerusalem, taking all these risks across the region, going straight to the cross. I can hear this line on the lips of the disciples as they watch Jesus draw the final line in the sand right in the middle of Jerusalem. Oh dear, this changes everything. He's going to that cross I don't know where you came from this week and how far you feel from God or how impossible this grace seems to be to you but please don't leave today before you without understanding God is after us he'll change anything he needs to change to get us That will never change. That has always been God's agenda in this world to come after every single one of us. That's been Jesus' agenda in this world. And I think Mark tells the story so he hopes we'll come to a different conclusion than the disciples. Because as you read this week, you will see not one disciple follows Jesus all the way to the cross. Is it possible we could come to a different conclusion? Experience this changes everything.
1: So here I am, save me, here I am, change me, here I.
0: God, save us, change us, mend us, and send us in the bold example of Jesus because of the incredible sacrifice of Jesus. This is our prayer. Amen.